From Vermont Digger, I'm Mike Dougherty. This is The Deeper Dig. Today is Friday, June 29th. July 1st marks the first date that Vermonters will be allowed to possess and grow marijuana under state law. That law specifies how much marijuana a person can keep, but it's hazy on some of the specifics. Grab a seat, come around the table. Last week, the Vermont State Police held a press event to answer questions about how they plan to enforce the new law. Captain, Lieutenant. Hello. Good morning. One thing that they made clear is that there are scenarios that they can't predict right now. This new law and the resulting training bulletin is going to be um, something that we're continually evaluating. This isn't something that we're putting out to the field thinking that it's just going to be there for the next year. It's something that's going to come back to us. Uh, case law is going to be developed. Troopers will have to adapt, as we always do, when we are in our enforcement role. And it's certainly going to be something that we're going to be revisiting on a regular basis. What they're saying is that after this law takes effect, court cases are going to test its limits. You know, every cannabis case so far <laughs> in history, basically in the United States, in the last hundred years at least, has been taken with the concept of cannabis as a Schedule One controlled substance, an illegal contraband. Um, now, with legalization, that turns all of those decisions on their heads. This is Tim Fair, an attorney based in Burlington. Everything's going to be fresh, the precedent will be new, um, and the opportunity to get involved in the industry is uh, just a very exciting for an attorney. Tim is the co-founder of Vermont Cannabis Solutions, a law firm that specializes in cannabis-related cases. Tim says his main job is advising clients about how the law isn't clear. Well, that's exactly the first thing we tell them. <laughs> well, first thing we tell them is that, you know, this is still illegal federally, which, um, you know, everyone should know that this is not a no-risk industry, even at this stage of the game. There's just levels of risk. Certain things are lesser levels. If you're an industrial hemp farmer growing under state law, following the uh, rules and regulations that were laid out in the uh, Farm Bill of 2014, you're very low risk. Still not zero, but the enforcement priorities certainly have not been against industrial hemp. So one of the first conversations I have is, you know, letting people know that getting involved in this does have risk to it. Um, and then we can look out west and we can extrapolate from some of the best practices, some of the regulations that have been passed out there, that we see some uniformity among states. So a lot of what I'm doing now is getting people up to speed on what to expect as they move forward with their businesses, mm -hmm. and then laying the groundwork, um, getting their LLCs registered, um, getting any permit necessary, you know, just basically laying the foundation. And then we go over what the rules and regulations look like out west, what they're looking like in Massachusetts, and then we can make some educated guesses as to what they're going to look like here in Vermont, um, with the caveat that all of this could potentially change. And one of those changes is coming this weekend, as of July 1, this new legalization law kicks in. How does that change things for your clients currently? Not much. Um, this is definitely more of a psychological milestone. For the most part here in Vermont, if an adult chooses to consume cannabis in their own home, um, it's very unlikely they're going to encounter any problems. But that being said, it is still illegal. And that is an issue for a lot of people. A lot of people don't want to break the law. A lot of people don't want to put themselves at any risk. So after July 1st, I think that risk will definitely evaporate as long as people follow the rules as they are set up now. But it will also go a long way in removing the stigma that prohibitionists have just put on cannabis for the last 70 years. 
we've been hearing from law enforcement authorities that in terms of their enforcement practices, they've been training troopers on certain changes that are going to come with the new law. But at the same time, there's a lot of gray areas for them and a lot of open questions. Are you anticipating that you're going to start fielding some of those questions from clients who are cannabis users who maybe get pulled over and they have a search and seizure that they think is unfair or something along those lines? Absolutely. I mean, that's, again, a major component of what we're doing. Um, We're going to have you know, several areas that we're going to be working with. Um, but in the transition period, while this is going on, we fully anticipate there's going to be a lot of confusion. There's going to be a lot of issues. I wouldn't even necessarily think it would be, you know, um, animosity on the part of law enforcement, anything just, you know, because there are a lot of gray areas. There are a lot of questions that H511 and the legalization bill did not address. Let's walk through what some of those are. What do you see as some of the key gray areas in that law? Well, I mean, first of all, we have the, you know, (laughs) the one I get most questions about is the gifting. What's going to happen after July 1st? People can grow at home. Can they get their own seeds? How do they get seeds? These type of questions end up all coming back to the gifting loophole, so to say. And this is what we've seen in Maine. This is what we've seen in Washington, D.C. These are two jurisdictions that have also similarly passed legalization without tax and reg. So what happens is, uh, you know, and I call it entrepreneurial uh, ingenuity, (laughs) uh, people want to take advantage of this opportunity and they are going to look and find any way they can do it. So what is developed in these jurisdictions is a scheme, so to say, in which people will sell T-shirts, bags in some cases, uh, fruit juice, there's a couple bars down in uh, D.C. that does $50 orange juice, with a free gift of cannabis that comes along with that purchase. So the individual is not actually purchasing the cannabis, they're purchasing something else, receiving the cannabis for free. Um, Under our current statutory framework, that technically is legal. It is legal to distribute, and that is defined as giving without remuneration, in quantities under an ounce. The law only specifically forbids sales of any quantity, um, but distribution only begins at one ounce or above. And do you expect that somebody's going to try to challenge that? You know, I, I think that that is going to be very fact and uh, dependent. Um, it, it's hard for me to say right now. I think if people don't try to take advantage of that, I think the likelihood is less. I think if someone decides to start driving around in a car with a six-foot joint on top of it, selling Ziploc baggies for $100 with uh, cannabis in it, I think under that fact pattern, you're going to see a lot more likelihood of a prosecution. It's also going to be very geographically dependent. There are 14 counties in Vermont, 14 separately elected states' attorneys. Each state's attorney has an unbelievable amount of autonomy within their own county to pursue the prosecutions they feel are best. The role of state's attorneys here is key. Their decisions directly impact how law enforcement officers do their jobs. The bulletin provides directions to troopers to collaborate with our local state's attorneys. Um, We have excellent relationships with the state's attorneys that our troopers are working with on a daily basis. And we know that we're going to be partnering with them in development of our enforcement related to this new law. And I think some state's attorneys aren't as interested in uh, making cannabis arrests as others. I think some do still view cannabis as a dangerous drug and may be more inclined to try to uh, push the envelope and make those prosecutions. How does that process work once a prosecutor decides to prosecute someone for you know, selling Ziploc bags with weed inside? How does that then affect the way that the law is enforced across the state? 
Well, what would happen, and again, this is speculative, I, you know, we, we don't know because we haven't seen it yet. My predictions would be, in the case of, you know, like I said, you know, an egregious circumstance with someone just blatantly, uh, you know, um, ignoring the law or, you know, blatantly trying to get around it, the prosecutor, I'm assuming, would consult with local law enforcement. I'm assuming local law enforcement would be the ones who would initially go to the state's attorney and say, hey, we have, you know, so-and-so doing so-and-so. We don't feel that this is within the spirit of the law. What do you think about prosecution? State's attorney would then look at the facts and make that determination as to whether or not, in their mind, there's probable cause for a crime. Um, let's take the gifting scenario, de facto sale of cannabis. So while the person is technically selling the bag, there could be a legal theory which states, you know, in our belief as the state of Vermont, this person, while selling a bag and giving away this cannabis, is in fact selling the cannabis. This is a fallacy, and we are going to pursue a prosecution for the sale of cannabis, which is still illegal. That would then go before a judge like any other crime. There would be an arraignment. The judge would also have to find probable cause. And then at that point, the defense attorney, hopefully myself <laughs> in these <laughs> cases, um, would then begin challenging that theory of the de facto sale, saying we can't look at the subjective intent of the individual. We have to look at what's actually been done. We live in a demo you know, democratic capitalist society. And if I choose to offer this pen that I'm holding right now to you for $500, and you, as a buyer, for whatever reason, decide to pay me $500, you really want this pen, that is a legal sale. Um, is the pen's value worth $500? It is to you if you're willing to pay it. Anything is worth anything a buyer is willing to pay. So based on that, I would say that the whole de facto sale is smoke and mirrors. There is no de facto sale. Um, that eventually would be decided by the courts. Mm -hmm. And then once that decision comes down, how does that then affect the way that a similar scenario might be enforced six months later. Now you have stare decisis and the uh, concept of legal precedent. So if this was a trial court decision and the trial court upheld that theory, um, let's say we went to trial and a jury convicted my client, we would then appeal that decision to the Vermont Supreme Court and say the trial court made an error in allowing this prosecution to go forward. The Supreme Court would then be the ultimate arbiter. They would make a decision as to either A, yes, that is a, in fact a good conviction and it would stand, or they would say no, this de facto sale is not valid and we will overturn the conviction. That would then become precedent and future cases would then be challenged <laughs> under that uh, decision. It was what's called a landmark decision and that would be the establishment of new precedent. Uh, which is, comes back to when I first got into this, why I'm so excited. I like the idea of setting precedent. I don't like the idea of having to follow um, laws that may be, or decisions that may not be, in my mind, correct. One of the things we've heard a lot from law enforcement about is traffic stops. Um, and I think for your average user, you know, Vermont's a state where people are going to be driving around. If they're possessing marijuana and they get pulled over, people want to know exactly what is going to constitute a search of their vehicle and what's not. So if a trooper sees a, a joint in a, in a cup holder, that will not be probable cause to search? We had a reporter ask if you just have a joint sitting there in your cup holder. Is that grounds to search saying maybe this person would have more marijuana than just that? Or is it not? And it wasn't a question they could answer. Right. Uh, I hesitate in answering those specific questions because each of these incidents are dynamic. There's a lot that goes into any specific incident in which we observe marijuana in a vehicle. You're getting into the component of open container, the open area of the vehicle. There's a lot of things that need to be considered. What do you anticipate coming down the line in terms of some of these questions about how police are handling traffic stops and dealing with impairment issues on the roadside as well? 
you know, the whole driving thing is definitely a, you know, very emotionally laden issue, a uh, concern that a lot of people have. It's one of the favorite arguments of the prohibitionists. Coming down to your specific questions, I try to make analogies to situations that people can understand a little better. So with cannabis, I try to relate it to alcohol. If there is a six-pack of unopened beer in the back of your car, uh, it's very unlikely that would be sufficient for an officer to suspect uh, DUI. Now, what you have to understand, too, is that in the vehicle question, the only question now is, is the driver impaired? Possession of cannabis is legal. So it's a regulated legal substance, like alcohol, like tobacco. Is it legal to have a pack of cigarettes in your car? Is it legal to have cannabis in your car? I would say the answer is yes to all three. Again, H511 did not specifically address this. When we had a medicinal program, which we still do, but the rules on that required cannabis being in a locked container. Uh, but at that time, cannabis was still an illegal uh, substance. Even after decriminalization, it was considered contraband. Mm -hmm. It was no longer considered contraband. So a joint in a cup holder, I would, <laughs> you know, is a cop going to use that as justification for a search? I'm sure there are some law enforcement officers who would. Would that be upheld in the courts when we challenge that search? Um, I would say no. But there's also a big part of common sense here. Um, am I going to be driving around with an ounce of cannabis in a bag on my passenger seat? <laughs> no, you're just asking for trouble. But in terms of the possession limits that we do have, that also presents challenges because, you know, we're talking about an ounce of marijuana. But as we know from how legalization has gone in other states, a lot of the ways that it's being sold is in the form of edibles, in the form of extracts and oils. And it sounds as though Vermont State Police have not yet identified ways to measure the quantity of marijuana that we're dealing with in those types of substances. Do you anticipate seeing issues around that, cases around that as well? Possibly, but at this stage, we don't have, you know, our industry here in Vermont and even in the East Coast is not nearly as developed as out West. So while out West, they have, you know, you know, been working on this for the last three years. They've gone through trial and error. They now have edibles. They have concentrates. They have a lot of this isn't available here. Um, it's just simply you can't get it. A lot of people aren't uh, at home uh, making edibles yet. Um, will that come up? Of course. But... These are a lot of just silly arguments. You know, we could sit here all day and speculate about all of the things that may happen. Um, but the reality of the situation is that, for the most part, people are responsible. Of course, there are some who are not. Of course, there are going to be issues. But for the most part, my neighbors, my fellow Vermonters, people are going to make decisions no different after July 1st than they did before July 1st. Uh, people aren't going to all of a sudden show up at work all stoned thinking they can bring their bong to their desk. I mean, that's just silly. And people aren't going to just all of a sudden start getting massively intoxicated and jumping in their cars and driving around simply because it's legal now. Most people will exercise the common sense that they do every day. Tim pointed out that there's another way to clarify these gray areas than just case law. Next year, the legislature could still write a law that would establish a taxed and regulated retail marijuana market in the state. In this particular case, with the kind of nuances and the circumstances surrounding cannabis legalization, um, I can't help believe while we may have what you know I refer to as a test case or two, I do believe that the tax and reg bill that's going in my mind to be debated and hopefully voted on and passed in January will address a lot of these issues and will alleviate a lot of the problems. The gifting will be gone. The gray areas will be gone. Um, questions of public accommodation, which is another huge one right now, uh, will be all dealt with. So a lot of this, I'm hoping, will be dealt with through the legislative process and that administrative rulemaking as opposed to the judiciary. 
tax and regulate has seen a lot of opposition in the state house. What makes you think next year is going to be any different? Um, lots of things. <laughs> First of all, we've now passed legalization. So I think even the uh, opponents are going to say, well, it's legal. They can't get it. It's happening. This is absurd. Um, that would be the first one, just basic out of necessity. Uh, secondary, we're about to see um, the first uh, G7 country on our northern border legalize adult use throughout the entire country. We're going to see the sky doesn't fall. In fact, Quebec is going to be legalizing public consumption. Anywhere you can smoke a cigarette, you can smoke cannabis. And you know what? The world's not going to end. In fact, people might be a little bit nicer to each other. We're going to see Massachusetts's adult use program come up and running online. We're going to be seeing New York's uh, adult use program, I'm predicting, coming online in 2019. We're seeing, you know, all across the East Coast, this is happening everywhere. I find it hard or difficult to believe that even the most ardent prohibitionists at that point will still have a valid argument for why it wouldn't make sense to put in a taxed and regulated system. But if it doesn't come through... Then all of a sudden, these arguments that seem very silly right now, we're looking at a year or more where people who are in those gray areas, in those unusual situations, are remaining in limbo. Of course. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly. If they don't pass a tax and regulated bill, we're going to see the continuation of the gray market. We'll see continuation of the gifting scheme, for lack of a better term. We'll see a continuation of the uncertainty, the confusion. Um, there will be prosecutions which may not go anywhere. We will waste money. We will waste time. Um, business opportunities will be lost. There will be a lot of negative consequences for not moving forward with tax and reg, and there really will be no positive consequences. So for that reason is why I also think that this is an inevitability. Okay. Thanks for taking the time to chat. Oh, my God. Of course. Anytime. You can find more coverage of marijuana legalization in Vermont at vtdigger.org. While you're there, check out Morgan True's 2016 profile of Tim. It talks about how he became an attorney and criminal justice reform advocate after a years-long struggle with drug addiction. The Deeper Dig comes out every week. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. Have a nice weekend.